like to ask for your kind attention, some thoughts on the path. I would like to speak about uh, the topic of craving and grasping tonight. The uh, key term is upadana, a rather central piece of teaching in early Buddhist psychology and in many ways underestimated. Uh, the term dana, as you know, is giving, generosity, liberality. Uh, the term adana is the opposite, it's taking. Yeah? And the prefix upa is a reinforcement of the taking. So taking very hard, taking very decidedly, taking in very strong ways. We tend to translate this as uh, craving, grasping, attachment, and in some instances as identification. If we're speaking of this particular activity of the human mind called upadana, then we're speaking on a heart level of attaching, grasping, holding on to. And if we're speaking on a mind level, when we identify with contents of mind, then we say the word uh, identification. I identify with something. That is the act of appropriation and declaring ownership of the content of my, say, mind experience. I can grasp this clock, yeah, so then you know, I grasp it. Uh, and if I want to grasp an idea, this is a little more difficult, isn't it? Because ideas are not so solid. They are not so tangible. They are more fleeting, and I need to do a different trick with an idea to appropriate it. In other words, I need to claim ownership of the process of thinking by identifying the content of that thinking process and taking hold of the content of the thinking process. So I appropriate an idea. I identify with an idea. I identify with a position. I identify with an opinion. I identify with a state. I have an angry thought. I identify with the angry thought. I become an angry person. The term of Upadana to, uh, occurs quite a lot in Buddhist teaching, both positively and negatively. Uh, negatively, it is very famous in the Khandas, the five khandhas, the five aspects of experience, as you remember, are there whether you are unawakened or whether you are awakened. Buddhas also have five khandhas. Um, what is different with freed people, arahats, beings who have completely freed themselves from grasping, is precisely that, that they have an experience of the five khandhas with without connection to grasping. So they have stopped grasping at the content of the five respective, spheres, five respective spheres of experience. As there are materiality, um, feeling tone, perception, formations, sankharas, 
and sense consciousness. Awakened people are not running on four khandas. You don't have kind of three khanda arahats or so, like three-cylinder cars or so. It, the thing is not running on less choose. Yeah? What has fundamentally changed is that these khandas are no longer the object of grasping. This is a profound difference, and it's important to understand the role of upadana in our psychology, what it tries to prevent, and what, and this is the, the pathos of this, uh, what it creates while trying to prevent it. Much of grasping, as we experience it in our lives, is there to create safety, to create stability, to create predictability, and to create sol solidity. Because it's very simple. We really don't hack uncertainty very good. We're not very good at coping with change. We're not very good at coping with things that are not safe and clear and solid. So we invent strategies to make th things more safe. Um, unfortunately, we're trying to do that. We try to make them safer than they are. And when we have convinced ourselves that they are actually safer than they are, we find out that they are not. And then we are distraught. We are lost. We are shocked. We are angered. We are dismayed. Um, we experience distress. So grasping is not something just bad people do, yeah? Just to be clear, you know? If you're not free, if you're not completely awakened, and I mean, you know, no compromise kind of awakening, not having glimpses of awakening or feeling a little more clear on good days than on others. I'm not speaking of this kind of awakening already happens, we just need to encourage it a little more kind of awakening. I'm speaking of a, a realization statement. Unless you're actually making such a realization statement, grasping upadana will take place in your experience. Quite possibly right now. So it's not just something naughty people do when they haven't understood. Uh, it's unfortunately something good people keep doing while understanding quite a bit of the things. You, know? you can give glorious talks about upadana and still not be beyond it, just to be clear. You know? So let us look at some of this upadana a little more closely. One way of looking at it is obviously going to the etymology. We're looking at the term. Um, I have said that probably to the, to the lifers amongst you, yeah, the guys who are here from the beginning, you may have heard me say that the term has two fundamental connotations or, or actually meanings. One of them is the one I've just described. And the other meaning is the meaning of fuel. And that comes from uh, the uh, Vedic practice of feeding the sacrificial fires. The feeding of the sacrificial fire, the activity was considered to be karma. As you know, in the Vedic tradition, this is right action, this is the proper thing to do, and the Buddha has turned this on its head. You know? uh, to some degree, uh, speaking of karma, of, often in negative terms or in connotations that say the consequences of these, these actions are unbecoming. So he has 
for his own teaching, used a lot of terminology he has borrowed from other uh, spiritual tradition of his day. And Upadana makes no exception. He borrowed that term from the Vedic tradition where Upadana was the fuel by which you fed the sacrificial fires in worship of the god Akni, yeah, the fire deity. Uh, this feeding of the fire as a devotional act to the deity of uh, Agni, of, uh, of fire, um, was called karma. Now in Buddhist uh, language, upadana becomes a bad thing. Feeding the fires becomes an act of uh, creating, the fires are no longer the, the symbol of the deity Agni, so the, the fires are now the fires of greed, the fires of hatred and the fires of delusion. And upadana is the fuel to feed those fires of greed, hatred and delusion. And karma is what you do uh, and what, at least in parts, leads to a growth and to a sustenance of those fires of greed, hatred and delusion. So Buddhist teaching uses the same terminology, gives it somewhat different uh, meaning and then proceeds to basically do just choose the opposite direction. So you want to stop upadana, so that you stop karma, so that you stop feeding the fires. That's the sort of larger context. So the double meaning of fuel and grasping is obviously hard to convey in English or in German or in French, or probably in Italian and uh, Spanish. I don't know how it is in other languages, but in those languages I know of no word which would do the job of holding both of these meanings. And so, translators, always a risky business, you know, you're always risking, you're risking a lot if you're translating texts, particularly big, timeless teachings of the Buddha, you're, it's, uh, you know, you're walking a thin line there, you know? and uh, it seems that translators risk what the Chinese tradition calls risk a price you pay in fur and horn. Yeah. It's a very nice way of putting it when you, to, to be reborn in the animal realm, isn't it? This is the sort of deed you pay in fur and horn. So translators have to make a decision between what do we translate, which meaning do we translate? Do we translate grasping or do we translate fuel? And usually they translate grasping, but it's important to understand that the potency of that term and the, the iconographic reference this term makes refers to fire and re refers to fuel. Now, if you think of a pea of, of fire, a log burning, you get an idea how the connection between fuel and grasping um, can be established. It is, think of it, that flame, yeah? that flame, as long as it is fed by the log, clings to the log. And if you blow into that flame, yeah, that flame bends away, but you, it, you have an impression as if the, the fire, the flame actually clings to the log, clings to the fuel. Yeah. I guess that's where the image comes from. It is the clinging nature of the fire to its fuel that establishes the connection from the fire side, and it is the sustenance nature of the fuel to the fire that establishes the connection in the other way. There's a tiny little text which 
uh, unless you're really into this stuff, you may never have heard of, but there's a beautiful little image of this, buried again in the depth of the Samyutta Nikaya. And I just love to read that to you. It's a text in the Abhyakata Samyutta, in the um, in the group of um, un undecided matters, it's the ninth piece. And uh, there is an exchange which I will spare you. Vajagata approaches the Blessed One and they talk about rebirth. Yeah? And uh, Vajagata has a few questions and challenges the Buddha and says, look, your contemporary, your competition teaches, this is what they teach on, on rebirth. Now, what do you teach? And... Um, he, he had one really interesting point, says, there was perplexity in me, Master Gautama, there was doubt. How is the Dhamma of the ascetic Gautama to be understood? And the Buddha's surprising answer is this, it is fitting for you to be perplexed, Vajra. It is fitting for you to doubt. Doubt has arisen to you about a perplexing matter. I declare, Vajra, rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. This is upadana in this context. The, the, the fuel is upadana. So the Buddha declares rebirth for one with upadana, not for one without upadana. Just as a fire burns with fuel, but not without fuel, so Vajra, I declare rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. Vajra is not content. Master Gautama, when a flame is flung by the wind and goes some distance, what does Master Gautama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? When, Vajra, a flame is flung by the wind and goes some distance, I declare that it is fueled by the wind, for on that occasion the wind is its fuel. Vajra is still not happy. And, Master Gautama, when a being has laid down his body, but has not yet been reborn in another body, what does Master Gautama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? And the Buddha answers, when... When Vajra, a being, has laid down its body but has not yet been reborn in another body, I declare that it is fueled by craving. For on that occasion, craving is its fuel. So the term is tanha, tanha upadana. So it is desire that propels beings from existence to existence, from manifestation to manifestation. So the Commentarial tradition has always understood this to mean um, the body physically dying and reappearing in another place. Uh, and I personally have no doubt that this is the case, just to be clear. But I also think this is only half of the story. Because the other half of the story is that that process of rebirth, which is punabhava, becoming again, happens every moment. So that which connects every moment of our existence together with the next moment of our existence is here to be declared as desire. So it is the desire that propels us from differing manifestations of becoming, 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 becoming. That doesn't just happen after death. Uh, it happens, you haven't quite recovered from, from your last birth on that one. Yeah? <laughs> that happens pre-death. Yeah, so this is important, and I, I have no objections with using this as a concept for uh, 
rebirth in in the in the early Buddhist sense. I personally think this is the most plausible um, explanation. It is a lot more plausible to me than um, that this body dies and somehow that was it for this lifetime. But I am very insistent that this explanation does not just explain the mechanics of post-death rebirth. It does explain pre-death rebirth. Yeah? The becoming, the punabhava, that is happening from moment to moment, that in fact constitutes my existence as a, as a string of pearls, basically, connected uh, by the string of desire that holds these pearls together. Very smart little text. It's, um, those of you who want to note that down, it's in the 44th of the Samyutas. Uh, it has, it's called the Debating Hall, and it is with the wanderer Vajagata, who is a particularly perplexed fellow who has had a, a number of exchanges with the Buddha, quite revealing ones. Good, let me go back to Upadana. Um, the positive ways Upadana's is spoken of is in, is in its negative, anupadaya or anupadana. So one way of understanding freedom is that somebody is gone beyond grasping, has an experience of the world and of himself in ways that are no longer tinged by grasping, no longer tinged by identification, no longer tinged by attachment and holding on to. In a way, you could say that Upadana is the last step in a fatal movement that splits the world into a part that feels like me and into a part that feels like the world out there. Upadana is in some way the last consequence um, that produces this fatal divide that reifies a, an experiencing subject and reifies an, an apparently objective world out there. Um, together with vijnana, with divisive consciousness, it is that which makes me believe that because I can witness things, I can have experiences, that there are, there is something and somebody in there for whom these experiences occur. It's a very strange kind of position. It's a, we're in a position like, I think I've used the image the other night, um, the sun going down. If I believe my senses, it just feels like the sun is going down and I'm standing still. I am the static part of that experience and the moving part is the sun. And we all know that this is not the case. We all know that in fact, uh, every four minute, minutes, the earth, the earth rotates by one degree and thus the sun goes down. That's how this works. We know this. We've learned this in school. We can prove it. We can, uh, we can arithmetically make sense of this. Yeah, 360 degrees, you know, 90 degrees, 90 degrees, 24 hours. You know, it's, diff it's not difficult. And yet it feels that way. It feels as if it's going down and I'm standing still. And in the same way, our senses powered by attention, awareness, sensitivity, and a, a sense consciousness that is divisive, that splits, yeah? 
that tells me uh, of apparently of something out there that becomes present for somebody in here. Uh, it just leaves me with a treacherous congruency and uh, a conclusion that because there is awareness of something, there must be somebody for whom this something takes place. And in some strange way, um, there's something here, and I can be aware of this, so this must be here for me. So now this goes, but I stay behind. Yeah? I have somehow been, become reified in that process. I exist. And now I'm here, and the thing that has proven that I'm here is gone. It's very simple. Kind of thought comes up, thought talks to me, I believe the thought or I disagree with the thought. The thought that I become aware of suddenly becomes my thought. Yeah? The thought goes and me stays behind. Yeah? It's a kind of... Oh no, the French call it légère de main. It's a kind of a trick. Yeah? It's a little trick our mind does. It, it pretends... Um, because something takes place, it establishes ownership, and the way this ownership works becomes the cause for me to exist, and then when the stuff that I have depended on to actually start appearing disappears, I tacitly stay behind yeah, as the owner of this world, as the owner of this thought, as the owner of this experience, as the owner of my sense impressions. Now, this is obviously not true. Because where does this I go when you sleep? Yeah. Various traditions have different takes on this. Vedic tradition thinks you know, you, your soul leaves the body when you sleep and comes back. Buddhist traditions uh, have a harder time at explaining this because they, they, um, they have various ideas about this. Various Buddhist traditions are in agreement about this. Some, some speak of a uh, alaya vijnana, a storehouse consciousness. Other traditions, the Theravada tradition does a particularly bad job at explaining continuity. Um, they, they invent a concept called bhavanga, bhavanga chitta, as a state of functional mind that somehow persists without specific characteristics so long before sense impressions kick in again and constitute uh, your self-construct when you wake up in the morning. Um, other Buddhist schools have invented something called bija, a seed that kind of continues. Or another Buddhist school has called this continuation experience prapti, something a flow, uh, a flow of continuation that subliminally continues before then consciousness becomes specific again with the waking consciousness coming, uh, the sense impressions and coalescing into a. A, a kind of a daylight self, while the, the nighttime self uh, has gone somewhat, somewhat underground and just kind of smolders on underground. Uh, the Abhidhamma has a particularly, the Theravada Abhidhamma has a particularly complicated uh, construct which uh, has a hard time explaining continuity because it has settled on a, a, a notion that um, mind moments arise and completely cease before the next one arises. So this is very hard to explain continuity with this model because everything completely disappears before the next one arises, which um, you may find some logical credibility in this. 
anecdotally, it's very hard to be convinced of that because we all know that the person you put on your pillow at night has something to do with the person you get up with in the morning. Yeah? We all know continuity takes place in our lives. We have memory. Yeah? We recall things from very small. How do you explain that if everything completely ceases before something else completely arises? So Buddhist traditions have struggled with this in some way. Uh, and yet all of these traditions hold true or hold to that principle that there is a continuity experience that goes on without essence. Yeah? There are no essences. There is no substance that continues. This process of punabhava, of rebecoming, works with, uh, is completely dynamic. It doesn't have a core that stays intact. It, it is not a soul that takes a new body, as in the Vedic tradition, where the soul stays intact and travels through time and uh, vicissitudes and stays congruent with itself, perfect and happy and immutable. Uh, Buddhist tradition is quite clear that things are not perfect, immutable and uh, completely congruent. It's uh, contrary. It insists that things are not stable, that they're anicca, that they are uh, not perfect, that they are dukkha, laced with unsatisfactoriness and contingency and conditionality and that they are not actually personal, that I cannot own them in a genuine, authentic way. Not even when I eat it, not even when I ingest something can I own it, uh, because it is part of a metabolic process over which I, as the ingester, have very little to say. It is following a course of nature that I don't act, that doesn't actually obey my will, yeah? unless you can control your digestive system. Uh, we've all learned a few domesticating steps in that direction, but uh, on the whole, I, I know very few people who claim that they can control their peristaltic, for example, per their, their uh, intestinal peristaltic movements. So this is nature, uh, natural laws that seem to govern our metabolism, about which our egoic center of will has very little impact on. So back to Upadana. There is four different forms of Upadana. That's one of the traditions uh, explaining Upadana speaks for four specific types of Upadana. And they are worth looking at. The first one, Kamupadana, is fairly obvious. It's the grasping that happens in the realm of the senses. Kama means three things. It means sense object, it means sense desire, and it means the enjoyment derived from experiencing sense objects. Yeah. It's a complicated one. One would wish to have three different terms for three different things, but in fact these three different things hang together very strongly. The things that we can enjoy, we wish to enjoy, and the act of enjoyment breeds desire for disenjoyment to be repeated. If that enjoyment is not repeated, we tend to experience deprivation. So, the connection between what can be enjoyed and our wish to enjoy, our capacity to enjoy, and the object enjoyed is very obvious in the psychology because we keep getting pulled into this world. We keep trying to find satisfaction by obtaining things that we derive 
mm, comfort from that we experience as vitalizing, gratifying, pleasurable, uh, safe, uh, lustful, um, just plain good. Yeah? In baby world, what feels good is good. Yeah? And often we're not really far beyond that. You know, we may have piled another 50 years on top of baby world, but basically there's a secret sort of belief when it feels good, you know, can it be sin when it feels so good? Yeah. When my meditations are good, that means I'm a good meditator. When my meditations don't feel good, I'm feeling something is not working here. Yeah. I'm not working, or the teaching is not working, or the teacher is not working, or the place is not working. Or, yeah. So we... We can be remarkably childlike in, in crucial parts just because uh, we have somehow grown accustomed to when it feels good, it must be good. And when it feels bad, it must be bad. And that is not quite the case. Some things just don't feel good. You know? Cleaning toilets doesn't feel good and clean toilets are definitely a good thing. You know? If you're like me, if you're a Swiss boy, you definitely like clean toilets. Cleaning toilets and clean toilets is not the same thing. Yeah. You can do it a little more philosophically than that. That was a bit crude, admittedly. Uh, you can put it with Nietzsche and say, well, you know, people want to be free and nobody wants to be doing what makes free. Yeah. We all want freedom and we all fear the things that lead to freedom. Yeah. Because the result and the practice leading to the result are not necessarily of the same flavor. Practice may be bitter and the fruit of that practice may be very sweet. Often we experience the sweetness after much hardship in our practice. I don't say only when it hurts can it be good. That too, that too is not true. It's a kind of old um, weird inverse logic so the bitterer the medicine the better the healing properties you know this too is not true yeah not everything that hurts more is better for you yeah i wouldn't want to believe this either but we do have a tendency to unquestionably think the good that which feels good that which flatters us that which validates our take on things that which makes our body feel uh, comfortable is necessarily that which is intrinsically good. Yeah? And we know this is not necessarily the case. Yeah? Some things that are perfectly good and natural, like say, uh, like muscular training, you know, doesn't necessarily always feel good to train a muscle. It's good to have trained muscles. Uh, it's necessary. So to what degree we can argue, but it's necessary. Uh, and what makes muscles grow is not always giving you a feeling of immense pleasure and uh, comfort and goodness. Sometimes it makes you sweat or it's, it's, it, it's even painful. Some highly natural things are painful. I'm, I'm told birth is quite natural and uh, giving birth to a child seems to be a highly natural process. And I'm also told, despite it being perfectly natural, it seems to be also quite painful. So not everything that is natural is kind of sort of effortless, flowing, organic, kind of, uh, yeah, it must be good because it doesn't make me, it doesn't cost me any sweat. Yeah? So Kamupadana seeks happiness through comfort, 
safety, gratification, enjoyment. It is the motor of much of our prosperity. It is the motor of family values. It is the motor of economic well-being. It is quite obviously we're pretty invested in Kamupadana. A teaching on Kamupadana as being a problem is highly um, unpopular, very um, subversive in many ways. Uh, we, you may think that you are not attached to body, but uh, if you've had the experience of loss, yeah, if you've been injured or if you even just temporarily hampered to do some of the things you used to be doing with your body, you may find that quite disturbing, quite powerful sense of grief, powerful distress. Uh, we, we have probably our most profound attachments to our embodiment, yeah, in this sort of our sense of incarnation, quite literally, yeah, being incarnate. Um, if all goes well, you may not feel that degree of attachment, but, but you will feel that when something happens to this body when that body is in danger. Remarkable strengths. You can mobilize remarkable resources to save this body from trouble. Yeah? Survive remarkable hardships or do sudden and decisive moves that you would have never conceived of yourself being able to do this when this body is jeopardized in some way. So our relationship to body well-being of the body, safety of the body, comfort of the body, pleasure of the body is quite strong. Even if you think you're a very modest person, if you're not a particularly sensuous type, or uh, if you have you know, made considerable gestures of restraint, um, if you've given up you know, wall-to-wall carpeting, sugar, sex, whatever, uh, still you will have attachments to your body. Yeah? You will have considerable attachments to your body, I'm quite sure. If you lose a tooth, you will know about this. Or if you lose a sense faculty, or if you kind of, if you suddenly get covered with some, some kind of skin ailment which makes you uh, want to hide because you're so disfigured. Or simply if you grow old, you know, and you kind of regretfully think, uh, you know, when you were young, you were kind of marveling at all these wonderful mountains and down and you get older and think, oh, okay, this one I probably won't ever go up to and that one I can't hack. And yeah, yeah, I used to go up there when I was young, but uh, that was a while ago, you know. So you, you may, the same things that looked promising to you that you looked up with proud, I've stood up there, you know, it's a great, great, you know, this was a great Alpine tour. You just kind of say, oh, rueful, yeah, yeah, that was, those were the days before my hip or my, yeah. So even if all goes well and we just grow gracefully old, we still may find that our attachments to body show up insofar as we, um, we find it not flattering to show the signs of aging, you know. Like to take this opportunity to point out that there was a time in my life when I didn't have hair sprouting out of my ears. Yeah, just just to be, you know, whatever you may think of me now. But when, before I began this meditation stuff, I used to be a lot younger. Yeah. So you you may kind of look at some if you're young with some disbelief how people can be old, how life can fall. 
you know, when, when 30 year olds were kind of stone old, I remember it those days. And then as you kind of go past that limit suddenly, you become a lot more tolerant for age, yeah? You kind of, suddenly once, you know, the 60 plus are still kind of young, it means you've probably moved up into that league. Yeah? You become a lot more tolerant for elderly folks. You know? Start more compassion, but also more solidarity, and, and you, you don't understand, you know, children under 40 or so. <laughs> the second of the Upadanas is an interesting one. It's, um, so the first Upadana, basically the big statement is seeking, pleasure, happiness, gratification, safety, prosperity, well-being. Our societies are very affirmative of this. They are no longer affirmative if it goes into addiction. That's the farther end of seeking and pleasure, uh, enjoyment. Uh, if we, we can be quite uh, harsh, people we perceive to be addicted. Or if the seeking of pleasure, the seeking of gratification is abusive, goes at the expense of people we deem to be weaker. Yeah? So we, can, we, we have some strong feelings about this. But on the whole, we're quite in favor of uh, pleasure-seeking as a natural um, movement of a healthy individual seeking uh, self-expression, seeking stability, seeking fortune, well-being, prosperity, and safety, and enjoyment. All across the board, you know, it doesn't matter. Chinese societies are no different. Uh, for a long time I blamed Judeo-Christian traditions for materialism, but there is a Chinese materialism that is uh, quite as rampant and quite as convincing as Judeo-Christian-based materialism, uh, as I have found out in living in Asia. Um, so this seems to be not, the cannot be blamed to a particular religious creed. I suspect it's fairly transcultural and transconfessional. Um, as many other things, like ignorance, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the second of the uh, Upadanas is the Upadana concerned with Ditti. It is Ditti Upadana, which means my attachments, my grasping, or particularly my identification with theories, ideologies, views, my take, my understanding, my particular outlook from something. The canonical ditti is somewhat downplayed. The texts tell us a number of views that the Buddha felt were particularly pernicious, views that say that there is no consequence of goodness, there is no practice possible, there is no result to generosity, uh, there is no conditionality. That's a particularly pernicious view in the eyes of the Buddha. In other words, we have no way of influencing what's happening. The Buddha felt this is one of the most hopeless points of view you can take. Yeah? Disempowering, fatalistic, deterministic, um, helpless. Um, also denying responsibility, that was a big thing for him. Claiming things are preordained and I am not responsible for taking action or for leaving, uh, for omitting action. Yeah. So, besides those number of explicit views that the Buddha felt were 
unfortunate and be being very detrimental to spiritual practice. There are obviously, and that's where Buddhist texts are a lot less explicit, um, our views about things that have helped us. Yeah? Uh, it's not just the, can, the canonical micca ditti that is a problem in, uh, in, in terms of grasping. Also, grasping at things we deem to be true is quite a, a, a big problem. You can actually understand something to be true uh, you can find out it is true and you, you can, by grasping at that, still derive suffering, even though it may be connected with right understanding. So grasping at right understanding also is a problem, not just grasping at wrong forms of understanding. If you have a choice, go for the right one, obviously, this is clear, but still grasping at any view is basically going to settle you with some form of dukkha, with some form of suffering. So. The, the heading of this particular type of upadana is competence. Now, uh, the idea is very simple. I know something and that knowledge in some way establishes my superiority, you know, my competence. I know things. Maybe I can't help, maybe I can't fix, maybe I'm completely uh, condemned to impassivity, but at least I know what's happening. You know. So it seems to be that we gain some degree of safety by having the feeling we know what's happening. I can see that very nicely on my computer. Yeah, if my computer malfunctions and then suddenly starts to work again, I find it very, very uncomfortable. I, I like that the problem has gone away, but I would like to have had a clear idea what made the problem go away. Preferably, I would have liked to solve the problem and know what I had solved. In other words, I'm not just interested in having the problem go away. I'm interested in living in a predictable universe in which I display competence. When something goes wrong, I can find out what went wrong. I can fix it and I can thus live in the confidence that if anything of that sort happens again, I will find out, I will fix it and I will be the agent in making things intact. Problems appearing and disappearing leaves me very uneasy. It's not very gratifying. You know, it basically says, you haven't tweaked what happened, you haven't tweaked what made it go away, and you're going to be exactly as helpless when it happens the next time. Yeah. I'm not sure, maybe I'm alone in this, and this just speaks... <laughs> I've just declared my narcissism here. and That's why people go, go so crazy behind a stirring wheel or behind a, a keyboard you know, a computer keyboard, you know, something a little bit malfunctions and we start kind of, uh, you know, being harsh with our poor little mechanical friends, you know, people attacking their computers, you know, clawing into their keyboards or, you know, shaking their fists at a screen, you know, very effective, yeah. <laughs> Or just starting to, you know, talk to people when you sit, sit in the car and, you know, somebody behaves in a way you think this is just not on. Uh, and you start talking to them in terms you generally reserve for the government or something. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, we all know that this is not just about what is happening. We, we, we know that this, this is about 
how we feel the world has to be. We play by the rules. These are the rules. I participate in public traffic. That means you, I expect you to behave according to these rules again. And by you behaving differently doesn't just jeopardize my life. It also means uh, my world of rules is not applicable to you. This is very frightening. Yeah? This is very annoying. I make great sacrifices and control my impulses behind the steering wheel and you get away with doing all kinds of horrible things. Yeah? This is really not nice. Uh, also it says that I'm not actually in, a, in an ordered universe. I'm in a universe where uh, I have to obey by the rules and some wild chaotic guy just does something and nothing seems to happen. You know, No lightning bolts strike him. You know, he's not kind of whisked, uh, he's not beamed up, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not powderized, nobody presses the smite button, you know, <laughs> he just gets away with it. Uh, and this is in some way a threat to my, I abide, law, you know, law-abiding, participative, individual traffic kind of thing. It, it threatens my take on things. This is how we do things here. So we have a great investment in views. Views create some form of harmony, even, even completely stupid views, even completely arbitrary views still create some sort of bonding. And uh, while they may not be intrinsically awakening uh, as a practice or as a ritual, they create some form of togetherness, they create some form of affirmation of we're doing this together, we are here together, we have an understanding with each other, we have commitments to each other, we have rules by which our commitments are uh, held, are kept. That is very structuring, that is in many ways very reassuring, it pacifies our fears, it pacifies our sense of isolation, it, it gratifies our uh, notion of belonging, our feeling of connectedness. This is big stuff for us. So having the same views with people around you is generally reaffirming. Yeah? So we flock with people who hold similar views. And we find really out of, the, out of our depth if we are suddenly uh, landed in a world where my view is, while well, I was just normal until very recently, and now I go to another place and I'm really, I'm really uh, way out there. And everybody says, what? So views are pretty strong. Now, some of these views we have acquired. Some of these views we have identified. Some of these views are the result of our studious attempts to understand something. We come to some conclusion. We espouse an ideology. We support this argumentatively. This is buttressed by common sense, uh, expert opinions, uh, popular take on things, and so forth. Yeah? So some of them, we arrive at that. But the majority of our views, we don't arrive at that. The majority of our views are the result of laziness of thinking, unwillingness to actually test what we believe, uh, the certain reserve at engaging with the discomfort of questioning something or challenging something. Many of the views we simply have inherited from the people uh, who have brought us up or from the subculture whose tacit values we have absorbed. Yeah? Many of our views 
We only find out when we meet people who conflict with those views. Unfortunately, you can have lots of views and have a feeling you have actually no views. Yeah. That's probably the, the worst possible view. You know, that you don't actually, you don't actually have a position. You know, you don't actually have a bias or a take. You know, you're just kind of neutral. You know, you can see other people's views. Yeah, and the problems they get into with their views, but you actually you don't have any of those. You, you just kind of impartiality embodied. Yeah. Um, you just sheer objectivity. Yeah, that's that's my favorite one. You know. I see your view, but um, I I know I know I know what's real. Yeah, capital R real. Yeah. So uh, views, many of our views are unconscious unless we meet people who collide with those views, and then we are generally a little bit disturbed. We are annoyed. We find that threatening. We find that um, disturbing. Often our impulse is disbelief. Sometimes it is anger. Sometimes it is the attempt to invalidate the other immediately, say, well, obviously this is stupid, yeah, or, um, yeah, that's what, you, that's what you've learned at home because, you know, you come from a really backward area or so, or, you know, I'm the kind of, I'm the cultured guy, I know about things, and, yeah, you, I understand that you think that way, but you really better give this up and, you know, join civilization or so. This kind of, um, there's many ways this takes place and often it is presumptuous it is patronizing it is mostly unfounded <laughs> no in terms of general validity often the so-called superior view is, is not superior at all it's, it just happens to be uh, within the context of my particular habitat the dominant take on this but as soon as you go somewhere else, you find out that equally valid takes can be taken, maybe even more profound takes can be found, and you would completely disagree with those. They're kind of superstitious or unfounded or not empirical or, you know, not um, disharmonious or you know, all kinds of things. If you travel, traveling is the great medicine against this believe when you go travel just go some other places and how how do how people do things there think how they with the same unquestioning confidence do what you think is completely off the wall uh, like you know you do things at home you know? so ditti is a strong and powerful type of attachment we engage in and it creates a lot of um, uh, feelings of safety. Uh, it doesn't actually make things safe. It is an emotional gratification we get from having the feeling of being in charge, knowing what's going on, having you know a thorough understanding, um, being able to explain, uh, identify causes, uh, prophesize con consequences. All this is fabulous gives me a fabulous sense of um, I know what's going on. I, I, am in, I have a feel and I have a know how things are happening here. Yeah? So it gives you, even from a position of considerable weakness or just a sort of witnessing position, it gives you a feeling, yeah, I know what's played here. Yeah. 
The third one is an interesting view. It's called Sila, Sila Vata Upadana. It's the attachment to, um, well, tradition Theravada Buddhism translated as uh, attachments to rites and rituals. And obviously the rites and rituals are the, the rites and rituals of non-Buddhist practitioners, yeah? which is convenient, isn't it? I've always found that a really uh, textbook kind of self-serving interpretation. Um, at last, with the second type of upadana, unfortunately, the Buddhist teaching touches a lot deeper and is a lot closer to the bone. You know? Attachments to sila and vata, remember sila, ethics, is not generally a bad word in Buddhism. Yeah? <laughs> Even vata is generally not a bad word. It means religious observance. Uh, usually these terms are uh, positively uh, charged. Uh, the word paramasa is not so good. It means yeah, fondling. Yeah, fondling. Technically, it's uh, paramasati means to fondle. Yeah, sort of in an uh, inappropriate way. So fondling rites and rituals uh, is um, a type of grasping that comes about not just by following weird. Uh, religious or otherwise rituals and rites that uh, early, you know, Theravada Buddhists conveniently attributed to people who are not Theravada Buddhists. Uh, unfortunately, grasping at such things, and I would like to translate it as attachment to method, attachment to technique, attachment to observance, attachment to practice, attachment to uh, a particular activity which you find particularly salubrious. We attach most to the stuff that has helped us. Yeah. That's the truth. We're not just attaching to weird theories and weird rites. You know, we, we have names for that. We call that obsessive-compulsive. Yeah. Uh, attachments happens to stuff that has actually been useful to us. So we attach to meditation objects, we attach to particular interpretations of a teaching, we attach to dietary circumspection, we attach to particular ways of doing things. Yeah? And the heading, basically, for that third type of grasping is, I know what to do. Yeah? First heading is, I enjoy. Second heading is, I I know what's happening, I am competent. The third heading is, I know the technique, I know the trick. And it's quite obvious to me that we attach most to things that have actually been very beneficial to us. You don't attach to stuff that hasn't helped you. You attach to stuff that has helped you. It's what has helped you. you you're going to try to convince others. You know. Convince them of your diet, convince them of your meditation technique, convince them of your chiropractor, convince them of your particular uh, holiday resort, convince them of uh, your therapist, convince them of, you know, we want to pass on what has been good for us, for others, in some way. Who hasn't been foisted upon a, a family recipe of a good friend, you know? <laughs> who, who hasn't been... Um, identified has not ident you know somebody has found out something crucial a, um, a profound sensitivity to tomatoes you know and suddenly wherever something is wrong in the universe tomatoes are to blame yeah 
There's a little bit of disquiet in the morning meditation. Yesterday's tomatoes, that was it. Yeah? That just gets people on edge. Yeah? Even 10 hours later, you can still feel it in the room. You know? And the proof was, you know, she was coughing in the morning meditation. Yeah? And he was jiggling with his seat. And, you know, yeah? Tomatoes, I tell you. Yeah? Somebody looks a bit funny, little one has a rash, tomatoes. Yeah. yeah, dollar course crashes tomatoes. It's you know, trader had tomatoes. Or you know, once you have fixated on this, you will find you will find a correlate that proves your theory is correct. And you know also the solution. This is you know, do away with tomatoes. You know, do away. They should not just be taken out of the supermarket. They should prohibit it. You know, people growing them should be punished. They should be. You need you need a license. Maybe you need a gun license for tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Toxical substance. Uh, you know, you you laugh, but you you will know how certain things suddenly become the focus of your particular preoccupation. You know, lots of perceptions go around. <laughs> You start ganging up with people over the internet who are on the same side of the fight against tomatoes and you know this. And suddenly, you know, there's you, there's you against the world. You know? There's the ones who know and the ones who don't. You have a very particular dynamic, and you can, uh, you can ridicule me with the tomatoes, but you can take something else, you know? and you will find the same dynamic. There's a conspiracy theory goes on and then you will find expert statements they have personal evidence and they have scientific evidence which is not naturally suppressed because you know the tomato industry doesn't want this to be and so forth yeah you know the story we all hold things that have helped us dear and when we hold them dear we tend to identify with them. We want to share them. We feel that we derive safety, competence, progress, well-being through doing particular things. And we can be quite snooty. You know? We can be saying, oh yeah, he's a good monk, can't say anything against him. Uh, it's, not, it's never done, it's never really followed the proper Satipatthana course, you know. Fair enough, he's lived there out in the forest 50 years and, you know, possibly, quite possibly awakened, but, you know, he doesn't have a clue of Satipatthana. Or you think, yes, a very nice meditator, but, you know, not a vegetarian. How can you take, how can you be serious if you're not a vegetarian, you know? doesn't matter, he's got all jhanas or so, helping selflessly, you know, spending his time prison visiting and so forth. It's not a vegetarian, you know, just forget about him. He can't have any degree of realization, any degree of compassion, any degree of ecological consciousness. Just as long as he's not, you know, against fox hunt and completely vegetarian, you know, don't take him serious. We, you know, you think people are really inspired or dedicated, but they've never been to Asia or they don't follow your particular meditation technique. And you, you can be quite dismissive. Yeah? So these are all forms of upadana in the realm of method, technique, practice, uh, activity. And it's usually good stuff you identify with, you think is crucial. You know? And it generally goes something like, this has helped me, oh, maybe this would be good for you. 
And then the next one is, um, oh yeah, this has helped me, you need to do this as well. And then, uh, yeah, this has helped me. And, you know, if you're really serious about getting any progress, you know, this is the thing you got to do. Yeah. And then, as long as you're not prepared to do this, you know, I just, I don't take you serious in your ambition or in your intention or in your aspiration. So this is the sequence in which this kind of upadana settles in. The last of the upadanas is basically uh, a subset of the ditti upadana. It's called atta vada upadana. It's the uh, grasping at a theory or an, an ideology of a self. And uh, that self-ideology is obviously a ditti. It is a view. Um, and Atavada is a particularly uh, unfortunate way of trying to find stability and solidity in a world that does not belong to us and is transient. It's the creation of a notion of self that is stable, unassailable and endures through time. I'd like to devote a little more time than I have tonight uh, to to this particular brand uh, in, a, in a slightly wider context. I just want to add the last fourth of the uh, Upadanas. It is, the, in many ways, the crudest form of an identification with the self. Buddhist teaching has a number of layers. So the most subtle form of uh, that brand is, is called Asmimana, is the conceit of I am. Uh, a somewhat more crude form is Sakaya Ditti, the personality view, the identification of my experience with uh, a personality that acts as a substance. And uh, that may still be fairly unconscious. And the, the most ideologically buttressed version uh, of this self-view is Atavada Upadana, which is the explicit, uh, argumentatively, uh, supported take that there is such a thing as a center of my being, be that a soul or a, uh, an immutable self or um, uh, an Atman of sorts that endures through time and that is the agent of my activity and that is the recipient of my happiness and that will continue in its untouched form after the death of this body. So the, the Upadana refers, in a way, to the, the most ideologically supported and explicitly formulated version of that belief. Much of that belief is often underneath the waterline. We only notice it when somebody collides with ourselves. You know, we feel it in terms of embarrassment or shame or uh, shyness. or uh, um, There's many forms in which that... Uh, comes out after it has been under the waterline. Generally, it is uh, we feel mortified. So, all our fears of public uh, humiliation or ridicule or shaming so have to do with forms of self-view. If you are just saying something and then you're proven wrong in the moment, in the next moment, and you kind of desperately hope that nobody nobody notices you know this this will tell you something about the intensity of your atavada upadana of your grasping at the notion of self but let us do that in another evening thank you for your attention uh, let me end here